This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS Canine Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have one of our HITS instructors on with me again. I have Don Blair with me. Last time that uh, Don and I talked, we were together at uh, HITS in Chicago. And uh, then we got the stupid pandemic. So it's been a while since I've talked to Don. Brought him on here. He's going to be back at HITS in Orlando in August. Just wanted to kind of see what he's up to and uh, pick his brain a little bit about Don's very, very knowledgeable about uh, especially uh, detection dog training and been involved in it for a long time. So, Don, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Can you, for the listeners that we have uh, that maybe aren't too familiar with you, can you kind of talk a little bit about your background? Sure. I um, Really, I was born in uh, Rhode Island, but um, raised in Colorado and uh, started with dogs with uh, a 4-H group in Colorado, came up through the ranks with some obedience in uh, the 4-H and then got involved with AKC. Um, I was lucky enough to get hired on with uh, the Lahana Police Department there in Colorado, uh, turned 21 at the Police Academy, um, started there with my first dog, uh, dual-purpose narcotics patrol dog. Um, I did that for about five years and uh, ended up with Pueblo County and uh, Durango Police Department. I left there to go on to U.S. Customs. Um, I was assigned on the border in El Paso, Texas. Um, Got promoted to uh, instructor. Was there in Front Royal, Virginia for about nine years. Left there to head out back to the border with U.S. Customs and um, worked in New Gallus, San Luis as a branch chief. And then uh, went to the private sector, did uh, some dogs on some military contracts um, here in uh, Illinois was our headquarters and uh, was overseas in Iraq and several other countries uh, for that company. Um, went back to the government and um, did the breeding program, was involved with research and development for U.S. Customs Canine and then uh, left and uh, now I'm just um, doing some consulting. I work the uh, anti-terrorism dogs for the Chicago Police Department and uh, have some other uh, uh, private contracts and um, my spare time, I do, uh, <laughs> um, I have my, my own uh, place in uh, Rochelle, Illinois and um, try to help out police departments and uh, do some civilian training and stuff. Um, and so I'm excited to be back at HITS. Um, I'm uh, really looking yeah. forward to getting down into Orlando. Yeah, it's it's going to be good to get everybody back together. It seems like forever because of this pandemic crap. Uh, let me pick a few things out of there that, that caught my attention. Um, can you talk, uh, maybe you can or can't, but you said anti-terrorism dogs. Can you kind of explain what that is and, and uh, what that program is all about? Yeah, the um, we have the Vapor dogs that um, from Vaporwake Technologies, So we have eight teams that um, search. They can do all conventional work, and then they can also do uh, large crowds. We were working the uh, Chicago Auto Show this past week. Um, We do lots of the larger venues, the hockey games, basketball games. They're a citywide unit. Um, It's uh, only eight handlers. The city, of course, has several other dogs and other units, but um, that's the unit that um, 
they hired me to uh, oversee and train with and uh, keep operationally ready. Yeah. So when you talk about your background, I mean, you've done, you know, local law enforcement from a small agencies. You've been the huge government uh, places. Uh, the Border Patrol and Customs are probably the some of the largest uh, programs in the entire world. You've been overseas. I mean, you have a, a very varied background. Is when you look back at, at was it probably is it thirty years or so that you've been doing this? Yeah, I'm getting up there now. It's yeah. almost forty. Forty, okay. <laughs> when you look back, uh, what what was like some of your favorite assignments that? You know, it's hard to it's really hard to beat um, working on the U.S. Mexican border if you're if you're hunting bad guys with a dog. Um, you know, we had currency detection dogs, weapons detection dogs, narcotics detection dogs, and um, when I was the branch chief there in New Gallus, you know, we're knocking down sometimes as many as 10 or 15 seizures a day and sizable seizures. Um, some of them, uh, I know one of the seizures we had uh, when I was in uh, San Luis was 101 pounds of black tar heroin. Wow. Um, we had several seizures of uh, several hundred pounds of methamphetamines and stuff. And so those, uh, those are really noteworthy for, you know, for me and my career and, uh, worked with some of the best handlers and dog teams, uh, where they're really in the grind day to day. So I really, it, there are certainly days that I sure. wake up and miss that. Sure. And those poor guys down there are getting beat up now without all that much support. I, I think it's crazy what's going on now. Oh yeah. It's just an absolute mess. The, uh, the, the flip side of that is when I was running the breeding program in uh, Front Royal, Virginia, you know, it's really super fun to go to work every day and just uh, imprint and, and play with puppies. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But no stress there at all. <laughs> go to work with a smile on your face from ear to ear. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be, I've talked to Steve Dean who did that in uh, the London Metropolitan Police Department for a long time and it sounded like a, a dream job. Yeah. Is that program still pretty viable? Are they still doing a lot of breeding? They are not. Um, the uh, we were taken over by another agency, and um, I think they kind of did away with all of that. The um, uh, really, I'm I'm actually starting a, a new breeding program on a personal level um, because they're uh, um, the agencies that I work with. It's very very difficult to find really high quality Labradors, and of course the the political swing of things. Um, I'm not sure how much longer the the, the Malinois and the Shepherds are going to be accepted. And so, um, I, uh, over the course of the last two years, I've started to put together some, uh, some frozen semen and some puppies. And, um, my wife and I are planning on moving this year, going to stay in Illinois, but, uh, get a larger property and, uh, maybe start producing a couple, four or five litters a year. Oh, that'll be outstanding. Outstanding. There's not a, a ton of breeding going on. I know, uh, with any of the agencies was it cost effective at all when you were there or did, did you have good success we we did one one of the big changes we did is a lot of the uh, models involved um, using prisons and um, the graduation rates i mean you know how hard it is to find a good quality dog trainer let alone somebody that's going to be around the dog 24 hours a day and um, when we pulled our dogs out of the prisons and um, the uh Customs gave me a, a small group of four people, but um, the work that the, those folks did was just phenomenal. And um, the last couple of litters were almost 100% graduation rate. Oh, wow. It's a, the, the issue is it's a smaller scale, though, than, you know, 
I know TSA at one point was probably doing 30 or 40 litters a year, but, um, and I, I, I have heard now that that they've canceled out their breeding program as well. It's just very difficult to maintain those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of an expensive proposition, I think. So interesting uh, problem. The, the, the sad part is, is worldwide. I think the, um, the younger generations, you know, they're not interested in the dog sports. They're not interested in the breeding. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the price and the locating high quality dogs is getting harder and harder. Oh yeah. I'm sure you've probably seen the same thing. The last time I was in uh, Holland and went to a couple of the KNVP clubs, honestly, the average age had to be 60 or higher for the guys that throw the dogs and a couple of younger, a couple of younger people and a couple of younger decoys, but it certainly was not a, a young person's club at all. The couple that I went to. No, and I, I see the same thing in Germany with the uh, with the Schutzen clubs. Um, even here in the U.S., you know the, um, the some of the big rule changes and some of the big changes of the organizations, but um, they're just not drawing in a lot of young people. And and they're you know there's our our lifeline yeah. for dogs in the next twenty or thirty years. Yeah. So I'll put you on the spot real quick. If we're talking just purely detection dog, everybody's got a, a favorite. Uh, do you have a, a breed if if you were gonna work you know a dog for yourself that you would look at obviously we're all, we're always going to take the best dog we find but if you were going to pick pick which kind of dog it would be what would you pick you know with with all of the the highs and lows and everything it would have to be a, a good quality labrador retriever um i'm a shepherd guy through and through and um i it just a room over from me is my dog. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I love her to death, but in the same room as her, um, I have a, a 10 month old lab puppy and, um, she is just everything you're looking for in a phenomenal dog. And, um, I think the ease with, uh, the handlers, the, you know, the, um, the handlers that are interested in doing the work now and stuff, I think the, the switch over from the academy into the street Labradors are, are pliable that you don't have the bite risks and things yeah. like that. And then the acceptance of the public, I think is also, um, much more accepting. Um, I, over the years, I, I find people are either afraid of dogs and you could be working a beagle or yeah. a Rottweiler or they're not. But when, uh, you know, when you have a, a 60 pound lab come running up to you, most people are not going to scream yeah. where you have that same with a, 80 pound shepherd or 60 pound shepherd, it, it has a different connotation. Yep. Yeah. When, when did that, uh, like the first time you worked a uh, Labrador, did, did you like it right? Uh, the dog then, or did, was it kind of a transition for you for a while? No, it was a big transition. Actually. I, um, I was a diehard shepherd and uh, Malinois. I would always, you know, every buy trip I went on, I almost didn't really look for the sporting breed yeah. dogs until yeah. I got to customs and that's exactly what we they wanted. And of course, when I started with customs um, in the late 80s, we were looking at dog pound dogs and shelter dogs across the nation. So Labrador mixes um, were, were probably the number one thing that we would yeah. pick out. Um, you just didn't find good shepherds and good mouths in, the, in those locations. And then in the 90s, we started our buying dog program. And um, we went overseas and we're buying nothing but German Shepherds and Malinois and, uh, you know, really nice, high quality. Some of the, a lot of them were Mal Shepherd mixes, you know, they're absolutely just stellar on the border doing the work in the harshest environments. State local law enforcement doesn't do 
that workload. Um, and I just think, you know, if you could find, uh, given, given today's day and age with the political climate, if you could find a hundred high quality labs, those would be much easier to, uh, you know, get out and assimilate into the yeah. police population than a hundred great shepherds. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. I've always been a Malinois Dutch shepherd kind of guy. And when I started the unit I'm in same thing, I thought, you know, I'll just use Malinois and then, uh, I stumbled onto the the Labrador that I still work today, kind of thought, well, this will be fun just to try it. And what I've seen is, is I think, I always say, I think the Labradors, they're, they're easier because they're so stupid. It's just smell odor, get ball. They don't try to backdoor you. They don't try <laughs> to, they, you know, it's just, they're very simple. They're just, uh, you know, the, the, the labs uh, will do that. Seems like the shepherds and the Dutch shepherds and the Malinois try to backdoor you and try to figure out a new game. And, and uh, the labs are pretty straightforward dogs, at least from what I see. No, I agree with you. I think um, they're, overall they're just easier management, you know, home management and work management. I think they're, they're much easier than, you know, one of the dogs in one of the, my contracts, um, the, we went and got the dog from the vendor, super, super good. And, uh, the dog within a couple of hours had eaten every electrical wire that wasn't <laughs> hidden the back of the car seat. And, uh, just with it, I told him, I said, look, it's like a two year old velociraptor. It's not like your lab that you're used to. And, uh, cause we, the, the vendor didn't have a single lab to look at. Um, we're really happy with the shepherds we got, but, um, you know, they, they can be problematic and they sit and think all day long. Yeah. And, uh, I think you're right. The labs are like, okay, I'm going to sleep. I'll get up and work and yeah. I'll work hard and I'll work good. But, um, they don't have that extra edge to them. Yeah. So they are, they are fun. So let's talk about your class. You're going to do it hits a little bit. Uh, it's, I think you said you've updated it since last time. Yeah. So it's going to be the fundamentals of detector dog training and problem solving. And um, throughout the course, um, what we're going to do is we're going to break down the behavior chain of a detection dog. And it doesn't matter if it's a cadaver dog or a bomb dog. I mean, obviously, there are operational differences. But for the, the gross behavior chain, everything is the same. And then uh, once, the, once the handlers kind of we walk them through that, then um, I think it really assists um, handlers and trainers for their problem solving. A lot of times I think... Um, that's one of the one of the skill sets that um, I think uh, many trainers, uh, myself included, um, over the years, I've really, really tried to perfect ironing out and getting to the root cause of a problem. And um, this methodology, when you look at that breakdown, really lets the problems come to the top. And um, it, it's you know a lot of times you say, oh, it's the it's the dog, it's the dog, it's the dog. But a lot of times it's the reinforcement and it's the way the dog is being reinforced or the training aid placement. Um, uh, we, we start out in our program with, with the simple false walls. And I know uh, one of the biggest downfalls that I see with a lot of the teams that I work with on problem solving is they don't really know how to search. They can run around a room and if odor smacks them in the mouth, they, they can function. But actively hunting out and seeking odor in a, in a, a search pattern methodology um, escapes a lot of handlers. And um, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the off-leash stuff unless you're really, really good at the on-leash stuff. 
Um, you know, again, operationally different. I do a lot of work with search and rescue and human remains dogs. So it's impractical for them to be running on leash. But if they don't have the on-leash skills, the dogs are not trustworthy to do the off-leash work. And pretty soon you find they're running around looking for, you know, raccoon piss instead of looking for human remains. So you'll start them out, obviously, on-leash and teach them a search pattern and how to use their nose better before you... Yep, and then and then it and then it moves. A lot of people think, well, that's going to move really slowly. But if you really um, take a step back, I, I, I like to say, let the environment and your training aid placement do your training for you, and that keeps the handler as a reinforcement machine, and it keeps the trainer out of the whole problem. And um, if you if if you do that, what you'll see is a super independent, hardworking dog with clarity of task. And um, when we get to these final behaviors of the trained final response and the reinforcement and then the restarting of the dog, when those things are crystal clear to the dog, um, it just makes the, the reading of the dog and the, the handler's life so much easier. Um, and it's not difficult to do um, when you're looking at it through this lens. It, you know, rarely when somebody brings a dog to me is the whole dog broken. It's odor acquisition is poor, or it's trained final response is poor, or tra- training um, tracing the odor to source is poor. But rarely is the whole dog broken. And so when we when we identify these problem spots, and then we go after that with laser focus, setting up problems to enhance that issue, um, the results are just phenomenal. And um, I've added in. Now that um, I've got my uh, my own training center, um, I've added in several videos of law enforcement and civilian dogs, um, you know, just performing unbelievably close, beautiful search patterns. Uh, the accuracy is unbelievable, um, and the clarity of the of the work is, you know, just everybody that's watching it can see. Well, that dog obviously knows what he's doing. So I think when we're talking dog training, at least I think like when I hear system, it's almost has a negative connotation because so many people have tried to put out some BS and call a system. But in a way, that's kind of what you have is you've broken down each behavior into categories. And then when you look at the dog, either the training or the problem solving or the finished product, you're looking at very specific tasks, a very specific things you want to see and that kind of makes it easier for you to i guess track the progression of the training as well as pick out what where you want to work on if you're seeing a problem with the dog is that kind of a correct way of looking yeah at it? and the and the beauty is is that is somebody sitting through the classroom um will will completely get this it's they're so the as the dog um goes through the behavior chain you know we have our start and then we have our hunt and discriminate those are trained separately, but when the dog is employed, they are activated together. The dog hunting for trained odor, all the while discriminating and throwing out the odors they're not supposed to find. And so, you know, right there, we could, we could talk, that could be a whole class in and of itself. And um, the way with which the dog processes this information to clarity, um, I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, when I was working uh, with Amtrak, um, here in Chicago, at any given time in um, in one of our, our large passenger areas, there might be 500 people with a thousand pieces of luggage. So we can't have the dog 
going and um, sniffing the uh, this person for five seconds and the next one, and then dilly-dallying on the luggage. They have to go through and basically anthropomorphically, it's no, 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 yes. And with that clarity of task, that just doesn't happen through you know, generalized training. You have to target and focus on that to where the dog is now making excellent decisions quickly on his own with no handler influence. And so that's where the, uh, the targeted training, once we identify, say the dog has some issues with discrimination, um, then we can target that through, there, there's a number of exercises we could do. Some of them speed drills, some of them very, very slow and methodical. Um, but just to get the dog's decision-making uh, capacity up to where we want it, to where they are going through a lineup, basically, again, anthropomorphically, no, 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 yes, on the correct odors. And you know what I like about the way you're describing this is I would envision that most of the time you train a lot of handlers. Um, most of the time when the handler graduates and gets their certificate, they're pretty well prepared, not just to work the dog, but to analyze the dog in these terms, which is just going to naturally let them do problem solving, whether they want to call it that or not, just when they're doing their training, as opposed to, you know, some of the traditional just hide and seek, throw some stuff out, let the dog find it. Either he does or he doesn't write down what he did and put it away. It seems like you're kind of starting from the very beginning, teaching the handlers to look at the dog's you know, in these contexts, and then I would think that would probably carry on out in the field. It, it really does. And the, the, the beauty of it, too, is it's super simple. Everybody, once they sit through the class, can, can analyze what's going on. And then for the more experienced handlers, the beauty is, is when you're getting that new dog or you're training the puppy, as the behavior change starts to grow, you can see the the weak, I mean, you know, there's no perfect dog and no perfect trainer, but you can see these areas that need attention earlier and earlier and earlier in the dog's uh, education so that you can, you, you, before you have a problem, everything is fixed. Sure. And on that same note, when you're doing problem solving, maybe if you're doing a seminar and you're seeing things, one of the things I see sometimes, I imagine you do too, is people want to work on their their good points, and when you they're almost shy away from working on the the weak points. And it seems like your system exactly the opposite, where it's find the weak area, work on that, and, and improve the dog. Exactly, and that's a, that's exactly how I want all of my handlers looking at their problems are going to arise in the life of every dog. It, it you nobody can stop that, but what we can do is intervene quicker as soon as we recognize an issue and deal with it then and there. And then the ideal is this constant rotation of improvement rather than stopping and fixing a problem and stopping and fixing a problem. Now, for dogs that are not have not come through the system, then that's exactly what we do. We stop and fix a problem. But as soon as we get the dog up and running, then you see this, this constant uh, the the handler's ability to constantly assess where we're at, what needs work and what doesn't need work. I try to I try to compare it to an Olympic athlete, right? The the dog has to be really good all year long, but on certain times they have to be great. And what we don't want to do is polish him up right before our evaluations. That should be our lowest form of. Uh, of working the dog, the or we should be able to do our evals 365 days 
a year. And so what we want to polish up is for the day the terrorists come or the day the, the really good drug smugglers come. And, uh, and if we're constantly improving that dog, I just find that there's less problem solving going on. And now we're doing way beyond high maintenance because the dog is just so good. Um, you know, when we're talking about high AIDS or inaccessible AIDS, um, the, the system uh, was just, I just did this during COVID for a private group. And um, this was a civilian group with min pins and uh, a bunch of small dogs. <laughs> And within about an hour, every dog, there was six of them, every dog was hitting hides 10 feet and above with 100% accuracy. Just because, yeah, they, they probably hadn't worked it before and you, you gave them the, the dog. Well, the, and it, just the clarity, right? Yeah. Once the dog has the clarity of odor, trace to source reinforcement, and then odor, trace to source, or as close as I can get, train final response reinforcement. And so we're just taking little pieces of the behavior chain. Um, we're not back chaining, but we're taking the pieces that need the work from the behavior chain and then going after that um, with these targeted exercises that really, really make the clarity of the task to all of the dogs with whatever they're searching for. Outstanding. Obviously, there's a whole lot of information that we can't get to, you know, in the whole class. Um, but you've mentioned a couple of times, so I thought if we could kind of give, you know, some of the information on, um, can you talk about training aid placement and the importance of that and kind of how you use that to your advantage? First off, we'll just regress right away to reinforcement, right? A lot of people think that when you're teaching a really good dog-directed detailed search, that it's going to be boring to the dog or it's going to be uh, trouble on the dog. And people love to see this dog running around freewheeling it. But the fact is, is that if we had a video camera on the ceiling watching the dog running amok, they're wasting needed energy. And a lot of times they're just plainly working for themselves. You know, it's fun to run around and be a dog. Um, when through the targeted use of our, uh, think of it, the targeted use of our reinforcement which ultimately is our training aid. If we say we have a dog that rounds their corners, so now we make corners profitable. And they're profitable because every time I stick my nose into the corner, there's odor there at different levels and thresholds. And then the dog gives a train final response, which brings reinforcement. Now corners are highly reinforced. The dog looks at them as highly reinforceable. So now when we come into a room with file cabinets and desks and chairs, um, the dog can't wait to get to the corners because we've switched away where the dog anticipates that reinforcement. And so a dog that has a wonderful search pattern has gotten a lot more reinforcements and a lot more training aid placement education than the dog that's running amok, hoping to hit odor or hoping odor contacts it. Yeah. And, and that's when you're saying that you let the training aid do your training. You're not in there directing the dog to the corner. You're letting him find it and then reinforcing, you know, that he went to the corner so that the aid is, is doing it for you. Exactly. We don't, the, I mean, I, I, I lived through it, you know, kind of the old, uh, um, you check here and you check oh, here yeah. and the dog is basically, I always call them odor confirmation dogs, right? Yeah. The handler did a wonderful search and he <laughs> brought the dog to the odor yeah. and the dog says, hey boss, you found the odor, I'll sit here. <laughs> Instead of the dog out in front with clarity of task, actively searching for the odors and then relaying that odor information to the handler. 
that's a, a great way to describe it. I know that's how I was trained too. I remember you probably the same way, blocking the dog on the car and not letting him go anywhere until he's checked every seam you told him to. Yep. And, uh, and, and, you know, we still, even after all these years, um, we still I'm, cannot understand and fathom the, the dog's olfactory system. But over the years, I've, I've definitely learned if the dog is set in the right reinforcing environment, then that's all you have to do. Let him go and let him do his thing and get out of his way and be there for a wonderful reinforcement. And, um, you know, less and less, you know, I, I just can't imagine anymore with whether it's a lab or a Malinois, you know, rarely do we get into any corrective actions where we're, we're you know, correcting the dog for the bad behaviors because they, are, they won't offer these bad behaviors because they're never reinforced. And if they try them, most of the time, if you just ignore it, a couple of sessions, it just goes away. It fixes itself. So then we have this really good relationship. Um, you know, again, problems are going to arise with individual dogs, um, but it, that the the harshness really over the years has just gone away from the training program. I agree. I agree. So, like, we'll just dive into that real quick. Bad behavior, maybe scratching at a at a uh, find. So before, I know we'd give them a correction, tell them no, do a few different things. Now. Basically, you're just going to ignore that through a few sessions and let him work himself through it? So, so no, what we're going to do is we're going to set it up to where they're not going to be able to scratch for a couple of sessions, reinforce the, the other behavior, and then we'll slowly move them back into where they could possibly scratch it. Um, if, if the dog does need a correction, then we will obviously give the dog the correction. But when we start with the correction, a lot of times I think these dogs' initial reactions is accidental. We've worked in, into frustration where they've given us what they thought they should give us, and now we've waited too long, so they're trying another behavior in order to get paid. So we don't want to diminish the desire for the payment through the corrections. What we want to do is set up an environment where it's crystal clear what will bring reinforcement, and it is also crystal clear what will not bring reinforcement. Excellent. I like that theory a lot. I think it, uh, and we've, we've all seen that some of the conflict, you know, especially when you start talking about maybe a Malinois that, uh, will let you know when he's unhappy in a lot of different ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes with extra holes in your body. Exactly. At the end of the yep. session. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think a, a lot of the, a lot of this Jeff came also from a lot of me with a lot of bite dogs, right? You can go out to any session and then see the, the dogs going over threshold where we're trying to teach an out or something. And uh, so now we, now we have to up the amount of compulsion or up the amount of force. Whereas if we never let the dog get there and we clarified um, the out on a lower threshold to fluency, then we would never have painted ourselves into this corner. And um, it's, you know, Mike Suttle and I often joke about it, but, you know, we want to build a motor before we put the brakes on a dog. And that's really the way with the, the crazy retrieving and the crazy hunting, that's all separate from the dog having to give the toy up. But we have all the motor we need, but we're not going to let the dog go into the red zone before we start to put on the brakes. And again, just keeping the, the training really clear to what brings reinforcement. Because at the end of the day, 
I don't care what anybody says. The dog loves to search. The dog loves to be with people. The dog also is out there for that reinforcement. And the physical and verbal praise is super important. But at the end of the day, I want a dog that wants the ball as much from you as he does from me as he does from a stranger. And that way we have the optimum working dog with the clarity of task versus, oh, I only work for Don or I only work for Jeff. You know what I mean? And so when, uh, when we're really pushing these, and, and again, these aren't scrub dogs, you know, um, but on the other hand, we can salvage a lot of dogs that I, I know in the old days, you know, 30 years ago, I would have washed a lot of dogs that are now very successful in the programs because of really, really beginning to understand how valuable uh, the reinforcement is. And when you change that up, um, to the dog standard, this individual dog standard of acceptance, man, you can save a lot of dogs. I agree. I agree. And that's, and that's even, you know, I know you, you also remember, you know, we only wanted dogs that would play tug of war with the towel or, or, you know, fight over the toy. And, you know, I've got a dog in, in our unit now that, uh, he won't play tug, or she won't play tug of war at all that another agency gave up on, but she's a, a Labrador retriever. So if you throw the ball, that's her reinforcement. And so I, I like the idea of kind of individualizing the training for the dog as opposed to being so rigid, which I think I've been guilty of in the past too. Well, and I, I learned it a lot too when uh, we were going through a transition when, when I was working that, um, you know, some people want the dog smashing into a, a metal pipe or a, um, rubber, hard rubber hoses and stuff. And, you know, the, the golden retriever doesn't have that mindset. <laughs> That doesn't mean he's not going to be a billion-dollar exactly. seizing dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's kind of like a job interview, right? What does the person find most intrinsically valuable? And for a lot of people, some of it's money, some of it's time off with family, um, some of it's the, the work environment. And we take a step back when we're evaluating our dogs, you know, is it the, the Kong with a squeak? Is it the tennis ball with a rope on it? And allow that dog to really select that. And then they're in it to win it. I mean, they're, they're, you're paying them exactly what they want, how they want to be paid. And, um, and then we just set the environment up to where there's a lot of paychecks out there if you give me these behaviors. Exactly. Well, that's all really good information. I'm really looking forward to the, the class. I know you said you've expanded a lot and added in videos. So I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it in uh, Orlando this year. And it's always fun picking your brain because, you, I mean, I think I could talk to you for hours. And, and I truly uh, always, even in this conversation, I've always learned stuff from you. So I'm looking forward to the class and uh, talking to you more. I appreciate taking the time today. Well, I thank you again for the invite. And uh, I really look forward to, I really appreciate you guys at HITS inviting me to uh, speak. I'm looking forward to it very, very much. Okay, Don, thanks. I'll talk to you very soon. All right. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Hits Canine Radio Podcast. Uh, I want to remind everybody that this year Hits is going to be in Orlando, August 16th to the 19th in Orlando, Florida. I know we had to cancel it a couple of years because of the COVID mess, but I'm confident that we're going to be back up and running. So start making your plans with your department. Uh, we should be good to go in Orlando, August 16th to 19th. And a few things about Hits just to remind you that uh, this year we're going to be at the Rosen Center. And as always, uh, the Rosen Center is a first-class hotel. We always pick very nice hotels and uh, kind of beat them up on the price so that uh, cops get to stay there a little bit cheaper. 
at a, a usually a nicer hotel. This isn't a an off strip uh, Vegas crappy hotel. This is a very nice hotel. Lots of uh, restaurants, spas, stuff to do, and a lot of stuff to do right around there. Like we always pick. So it's a super nice hotel. Uh, you'll really enjoy it down there. There's going to be, all, as always, we'll have more than a thousand other cops there. And it's uh, only cops. We vet our uh, attendees, so they have to be law enforcement or closely related to our profession. These other uh, seminars you go to, anyone that'll pay the registration can come in that, to include uh, attorneys who sue us, media people, you name it. If uh, they want to pay the registration, they can sit in the class right next to you. Uh, most cops appreciate the fact that ours is a law enforcement vetted only seminar. So it keeps us uh, a little bit different than uh, all of these people that are copying what we're doing. Uh, we'll have more than 100 vendors there. All the industry vendors are coming. We've sold out of booths right now. So if you check out hitscanine.net, you'll see all the vendors that are coming. You'll see all the instructors, get all the information. You can register right there and you can register for the hotel right through our website, hitscanine.net. And as always, if you uh, want to contact me, jeff at hitscanine.net. I love all the feedback I get. I really appreciate it. And if you could do one final favor, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast, uh, go down and give us a uh, rating. It really helps us get uh, found in the Apple Podcast search engine a lot better if we have more ratings. So thanks again. Stay safe out there.